Hi, I'm Edward Collin. I'm here to do a content warning for RIS. It's a program that talks about movies and shows and sexy vampires like myself. The following is only meant for mature audiences, as it'll contain offensive language, hot takes, and sexy photographs of Bella and I. Oh. Uh, hey, uh, Ed, we can't show photos of you and your girlfriend. Uh, sorry, bud. How about a whole segment with my soft noises? No, no, we, we can't do that either. Just stick to the script, okay? Fine, I guess. This episode will also contain spoilers, so make sure to gaze at the TV for a little itty bit before you listen to us. Enjoy the invisible show. Oh, what? Come on. Hey, it wasn't gone that long. You suck! That's not nice. Hey, put that down. Put it down. I don't care what you say! Security. Mother effer. What a mess. <sighs> Welcome to The Invisible Show. My name, of course, is Rydog, Ryan, Big Daddy, whatever you feel comfortable with. Woo! Dale. Dale. We have an amazing show for you today, as I'll be covering the Evil Dead trilogy, the Dead Snow movies, and filling out all of the requests I got back in early September. So, without further ado... Aren't you gonna mention Twilight? Ah. Yes, Ed. Uh, Twilight was also a request I promised to meet, and thank you for coming out here to record that monologue for us. We uh, all sincerely appreciate it. Anyway, we've got timestamps in the description in case you want to skip to any specific review, but I insist that you all stick around for the whole episode because we have a whole lot of surprises. And so, without further ado, dale! Zombies have a long history and a large presence in contemporary media. There are many types you've already become familiar with. The slow, fast, intelligent, and non-intelligent kind. Varying in all types of designs that range from practical makeup to being generated by computer graphics. Today we'll be focusing on the Evil Dead trilogy, which technically doesn't have zombies, but rather dead people resurrected for a malevolent purpose. As always, I'll be sharing my general thoughts talk about the main character's arcs, the plot, and do something a bit differently this time. What? Huh. In addition to discussing all that, I'll be showing you through audio how I would have written certain pivotal moments had I been the director or writer for two of the movies we'll be examining in this segment. Groovy. I'll be reviewing the Evil Dead trilogy, Dead Snow, Dead Snow, Red vs. Dead, both of which were almost directly inspired by the Evil Dead, and last, and certainly the very least, Resident Evil. Eek. I'm going to describe the plot and read some of the synopses for these films so you don't have to watch before you listen as always. And keep in mind, these movies are especially not the type to be spoiled since the stories are very one-dimensional, but not in a bad way by any means. We'll be going over them individually, so the first one up, naturally, is Evil Dead 1. 
So let me just start off by saying this is an old film, but for people that like old gritty horror, like Texas Chainsaw or even The Exorcist, for example, this is a must watch for you for its merits and because of how influential it is. From a narrative standpoint, all three movies are extremely basic, albeit slightly unique in some ways. If you haven't seen any of them, you'd be surprised to know the first two pretty much have the exact same story. In the first Evil Dead, Ash, who's the main character of the series, innocently visits a cabin in the woods along with his pals and girlfriend where they come across a book with ancient evil mysteries called the Necronomicon. Everyone slowly turns, and boy, does it get ugly. Uh, I mean, the makeup is so hideous to look at, and uh, I was watching the gory scenes and the turned characters howling as I was eating microwave wonton soup and some Trader Joe's chicken salad that was like 10 days old, which is just very disgusting on its own. Uh, and that specific combination even made me hurl at certain points. Yeah. Uh, they, they show people getting dismembered, vomiting, stabbing, scenes of the dead ripping at the flesh of living characters. It was just so fucking gruesome, to say the least, and it didn't seem odd to me because it was very unclear of how one becomes an evil dead, or a deadite, as they like to call it. For example, there are three girls, right? One of them is entrapped by the surrounding branches and twigs of the nearby trees, but manages to escape. She returns and tells everyone what happened, and nobody believes her, but out of sympathy, Ash decides to escort her down the mountain, and it turns out they can't because of all the blockades in the roads. A few scenes pass, and she's in the background of the shot, staring outside of the window. As she turns around and reveals herself to be a newly formed deadite. One other girl is shown to be chased by the camera from outside the window with swooshing sound effects and becomes a deadite immediately after it catches up to her. So they look at something, and then they turn. That's what we know so far. The last girl is stabbed in the ankle by a pencil and is converted a few moments later. However, the other guy besides Ash is horribly mangled, cut open by the deadites, and remains completely sane until the third act. But it doesn't add up, because the girl was merely stabbed by a pencil while the guy was hurt in a whole variety of ways before he turned. At first I thought, well, okay, the logic doesn't add up, leave it be. But what if that was the point? What if they wanted to take their time torturing Ash to single him out as if it was all a game? Take a listen to how playful they are. It's your sister, Cheryl! Thank you. I don't know what I would have done if I had remained on those hot coals, burning my pretty flesh. You have pretty skin. In the end, all the friends become deadites and mentally torment Ash, and you could really see how conflicted he was on whether he should kill his girlfriend and his friends or not, uh, whether their souls could be saved. I mean, how would you react if your best friends were suddenly trying to kill you? And Ash technically becomes a deadite by the end of the movie, but I want to address that when we discuss the sequel. So uh, let me give some final thoughts and I'll move on to the next one. You probably have seen movies like Cabin in the Woods or others from the monster in the house genre, as they like to call it. And the story doesn't stray away from that formula at all. Everyone dies except the hero, so in a way it's a little generic, but don't watch these movies for the story. Watch it for the experience, especially this one. You'll get to see something that's authentically gritty, disgusting, and so raw in passionate filmmaking. 
there will never be something like this made ever again because it would be extremely difficult to recapture. All three movies are available on HBO Max, so if you have the service, be sure to check out the first one at the very least. The second differs only in a few ways. They expand on the lore, they have stop-motion animation, and almost completely retcon the first. Yeah, I know. I won't get into why that happened, but basically Evil Dead 2 was done by a different studio, meaning they weren't allowed to acknowledge the events of the first movie. But instead of completely rebooting, they start narrating another version of what happened before Ash becomes infected as it was the last thing we see from the first movie. Ash is corrupted by the off-screen possessor, but is saved from becoming a Deadeye by the sunlight at the beginning of the second. He makes it into the cabin, avoids the possessor by locking himself in, and a new group that's led by a woman who is seeking contact with her father, the man who originally recovered the Necronomicon from the ancient ruins, shows up and decides not to trust Ash at first. So they stow him away into the basement and lock him in there. So that's where the dilemma unfolds. And you can already kind of infer what happens. Ash uh, doesn't catch a break at all from the Deadites. Uh, he's forced to cut off his own hand after it randomly develops a mind of its own, and the evil people tease him for what happened to his girlfriend. So it's all strenuous, physical, and psychological torture the character unknowingly signed up for when he decided to vacation there with his friends. It's so fucked for him, yet he chooses to embrace the madness by fighting the Deadites head-on and replacing his hand with a freaking chainsaw. It's a fun watch, though I wouldn't say that I liked it more than the first mainly because I'm more partial to its effects. Yeah. In regards to the retconning of the first, the only major change is in the retelling where Ash explains it was just him and his girlfriend in the cabin thereby cutting the existence of his friends but nothing else in the story of Evil Dead 2 contradicts their existence, so you could totally ignore the opening scenes version of what happened and just move along. <laughs> What's even weirder is that they retcon the ending of the second in the beginning of the third film, Army of Darkness. But if you think about it, none of the changes really matter for a franchise that's not meant to take itself seriously at all. Let me put it this way. As long as the movies give us information that's reasonably digestible, there's no problem with it. Think about it. Is anybody really going to compare it to Lord of the Rings? I don't think so. When it comes to the third film, Army of Darkness, it almost completely abandons the horror elements and embraces the camp and cartoonish humor the other two had, but to the fullest extent. And this one, Ash is in the 1300s and he has to use the Necronomicon in order to get back home. But the people in that time see him as their savior, so he's put on a pedestal and being beckoned for action against the evildoers. Uh, you know how it goes. He reluctantly accepts and finds the courage to stay and fight with them to save their society from total calamity. The good guys win, yada yada yada. What more can I say? These are basic stories, and with a runtime of only an hour and 30 minutes, you can't add a whole lot of nuance or depth to the characters when there are story beats you have to hit and other people you gotta introduce and amazing effects you'd much rather focus on as the director and writer of the project. It's a whole laundry list. But again, it's not about the story or the writing, it's all the passion that went into the production for these films. They were merely trying to get from point A to point B, 
because they're not the type of films to really explore the philosophical ideas or at least take the time to do so. It's just the epic poem that's been told over a thousand times. Uh, but remember, how that happens is why we see these movies, and I think there are a couple things to note about Ash in particular. He starts as this normal-ass dude vacationing with his friends and then just slowly accept the new life he has to lead against the Deadites as this charismatic, handsome, double-barrel-slinging, chainsaw-wielding badass who's willing to take on anything that's thrown his way. If you look at all three films, his arc evolves in three stages, where he learns the acceptance of the madness, embracing the madness by the time we finish the second, and courage. In the first two, he's just this guy that's been victimized by the Deadites and really just wants to get back home since he never asked for the fate to begin with, like I said before. Uh, he cuts his hand and pulls other crazy stunts after learning he has to fight fire with fire, and you could really see that in three, he doesn't care for the primitive kingdom or its people at all. But he finds the courage within himself to save them because he knows it's the right thing to do. So he just starts off as this kid that sort of goes on this emotional journey for himself. And for this movie, they go all out with the third act. It's truly a spectacle. They show skeletons getting crushed, greatly choreographed sword fights, zany moments, a fortified car driving around with a large spinning blade on its hood, it's a really good time, so I do recommend checking it out on HBO if you have it and are looking for some entertainment. Although, I wouldn't recommend going out of your way just to watch this one. Don't pay to see it if it doesn't sound interesting to you. And if you don't have HBO Max, you know, just wait till it's available on the streaming service that you're already subscribed to. But here's what I think they could have done differently. I would have taken the story in a different direction had I been the writer for Army of Darkness. First off, the villain. I loved him and some of his execution. He's an evil version of Ash that grew out of his body and who's technically not even a deadite, but rather a pawn that was made for evil. And his delivery is masterfully hysterical. Take a listen to the scene of him fighting Ash in the climactic battle. I possess the Necronomicon. I've crushed a pathetic army. Now I'll have my vengeance. Now, my gripe is with the missed opportunity here. The story definitely would have been better if they honed in on him being a slightly worse version of Ash with his own motives, but they don't. They don't take the time to distinguish his character outside of being a generic, goofy, deadite commander who just so happens to be Ash's evil clone. I even forgot that he was the clone of Ash by the third act. I, he was a completely unrecognizable dude. I mean, they, they shared no similarities whatsoever. Uh, this is when he's first introduced. What are you? Are you me? What are you? Argue me! <laughs> you sound like a jerk! Why are you doing this? Oh, you want to know? Because the answer's easy. I'm bad, Ash. And you're good, Ash. You're goody little two-shoes. <laughs> I love the slapstick, but it's beyond fair to suggest Evil Ash could have been executed in a better way. I would have appreciated his goals and his similarity to Ash to have been more fleshed out than it actually was. 
And furthermore, in my own opinion, the story would have been much better if they had made evil Ash motivated by self-grandeur. In the beginning of the movie, we see Ash proving himself as a confident adversary to the Deadites, and immediately after, he's worshipped as this prophet who might be able to stop them, boosting his self-esteem to a fault. So, instead of having evil Ash hate our Ash right off the bat, what if they took that idea a step further and made evil Ash obsessed with fame and recognition after he's had a taste of it while he was still in Ash's body and in love with Ash? Let me show you how I would have done it. Evil Ash comes into consciousness and tries to reason with Ash. Ah, I'm alive! I'm alive! <laughs> ah, oh my god! Wait, come here! Listen to me! What the... What the hell are you? I'm you! <laughs> uh, you're... You're not going to attack me? Why would I? You're me! I'm you! They look at one another and mirror each other's movements. They're both fascinated. They each carry similar expressions and mannerisms. Except, Evil Ash is much more wide-eyed and carries a very dark grimace. Hey, I never knew I looked so good in medieval gear. Don't forget the part about us being smarter than everyone else in this friggin' century! <laughs> right? <sighs> Ash, baby, you're here to get the Necronomicon for those wretched primitives, ain't ya? I'm gonna use this thing to get back home. And after that, they could do whatever the hell they want with it. Doesn't concern me. Wait, hold on there, Ashy boy! You don't wanna do that! Why not? Listen, I know everything about you, Ashi. I know the power of the Necronomicon. We can live forever, baby, in fortune and glory. We can rule over these brain-dead primitives. I don't care about that. I'd rather have air conditioning. And I gotta tell Linda's family how she died. And then, I'm gonna drink to forget this whole goddamn nightmare. Uh, come on, Ashi. We can stop Linda from ever dying. We could have a thousand Lindas. We could be, uh, we could be uh, evil can evil. <laughs> Wouldn't you want that? <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. I've already made up my mind. Uh, you have nothing to live for, you pathetic weasel. All your friends are dead. Nobody loves you. You'd be a loser if you go back. You're a nobody. <laughs> but, but I love you, Ashy boy. I'll take care of you. Forever. And never. Get off of me. I wouldn't trust a dead-eyed if it came out of my own asshole. Now step out of my way. You little goody-two-shoes! You'll be nothing without me, Ashy boy! You got nothing going for you! You'll be a weasley goody-two-shoes for the rest of your friggin' life! Ah! You little goody-two-shoes! Huh? Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. I also would have written another scene of Evil Ash confiding his own personal vendetta against Ash to one of the Deadite captains, and then another of him riling everyone up for battle. Take a listen. My own counterpart betrayed me. Would have been left in the ground for hundreds of years had he said the ancient saying correctly. I bet he pranced all over my grave after he thought he got rid of me. Left me for dead because... He didn't want me. Ugh! Last! 
I will destroy him and retrieve the Necronomicon and be loved, adored by millions of hot daddies. And I can rule that friggin' world if I wanted to. Become an emperor, emperor of the dead. <laughs> Master, we have the girl. <laughs> oh, goody. So, Ashy Boy wasn't strong enough to save you either, huh? <laughs> Stick with me, baby. I'll take care of you. Lay some sugar on me. Later. Listen up, you scrounging pile of bones and rotten corpses! The time to exact vengeance is upon us! They led you to senseless battles, destroyed your lives, and all they had to show for it was a cheap memorial service! Pathetic! They left us! They left all of you! Called your burial grounds the land of evil! Killed your sons for more senseless wars! We will have the Necronomicon, enslave the living, and rule for all eternity! Who's with me? <laughs> Hail, your overlord! Ash! Uh, uh, Knievel! Ash Knievel! That's my name! <laughs> they love me, they freaking love me! I do think the addition of these scenes would have demonstrated a better contrast between evil Ash and good Ash in the narrative, showing that Ash does still care about people even after all that he's been through, whereas evil Ash would have been much more focused on his own selfish desires, goals that good Ash could have easily pursued if he was slightly more egotistical. And talking about this even made me think about evil. Because evil is such an abstract term, what makes someone evil? Is someone evil for simply ignoring their duties and responsibilities to protect? Is there such a thing as evil by knowing omission? Do you have to be psychotic or negligent? The definition of evil is profoundly wicked and immoral, but what even is wicked? It's evil, so it kind of goes back full circle. The Deadites, in this case, are evil for wanting to decimate and corrupt human life for the purpose of wreaking havoc and causing others to suffer. But why do they want to wreak havoc? Why are the Deadites not at peace? Why are they so eternally enraged by the existence of humans? I think the movie would have been way more interesting for taking the time to explore these questions as well. But, you know, for what it's worth, I believe everything about this trilogy by Sam Raimi is acceptable since the purpose of these films, and I've said this before and I will always say it, is just meant for mindless popcorn fun. I think you all have to understand when uh, people are critiquing things, it's always going to be subjective. I am very partial to creators um, going over philosophical ideas and really fleshing them out and asking deep, nuanced questions and answering them in the best way that's possible and following what's true to their heart, if that makes any sense. So I'm glad that I experienced this trilogy, and I hope you can too. Now let's talk about a perfect duology that was almost directly inspired by the Evil Dead trilogy, Dead Snow 1 and Dead Snow 2, Red vs. Dead. Let me read the synopsis for the first movie so you know what they're about. A party of eight Norwegian medical students travel to a remote Arctic mountain for an Easter weekend filled with skiing and relaxation. 
After one of their group disappears, while on his solo cross-country hike, a mysterious local resident tells the remaining visitors that, in the waning days of World War II, a battalion of Nazi soldiers disappeared into the nearby woods after the residents turned on them, and that their zombified corpses remain on the prowl in the area. <sighs> it's a foreign film where all the characters speak Norwegian, so you do have to rely on subtitles, but don't let it discourage you from watching it and it's only going to be for this movie so just keep that in mind and you have to remember that stories like these aren't meant to have any meaningful character development uh, but I strongly believe that no matter how long the movies are horror is the one genre that can put a character through so many traumatic events and force them to become phenomenally courageous broken or deranged or even a mix of all three resembling what trauma actually does to people in real life and i felt like they did a good job with that here there's some great action in dead snow and it surprisingly chooses to reverse our expectations by setting someone up as the main character and then ripping all of their limbs and head off <laughs> It's insane, but the concept of Nazi zombies is a tad underutilized in the first because while they are zombies that roam the mountains in Nazi uniforms, that's pretty much all that they are. Let me ask you this. What makes the idea of a Nazi so egregiously menacing? Well, you'd think to yourself, white supremacy, of course. But it's not just that. It's taking it a step further by committing hate crimes and supporting or enacting mass genocide of any race they deem inferior. Now, I'm not saying the Nazi zombies should have put the main heroes in concentration camps. That would be a little too silly, nor is it something to be made fun of. But what I am saying is that they could have had zombie supremacy in there, and I'll show you what I mean when we talk about its sequel. In the last few scenes of the movie, the character Martin cuts off his own arm after getting bitten, loses his girlfriend, and even gets his nutsack bitten off. <laughs> Yeesh, poor guy. His torment flourishes on until the end of the first act of the second film, so it's very similar to Ash being tormented in the first two Evil Dead movies, except he's the nerd you don't think is going to come out of it alive, and by the middle of the second act, I was thinking, oh man. It's the hot guy and the resourceful girl that are going to live in typical B-horror fashion. But like I said, the movie did the unexpected and killed its attractive leads, leaving Martin to escape by giving the zombies what they were looking for, which were jewels owned by people that they persecuted. But they follow him to the car because he inadvertently took one with them. Are you following along? Yeah, I know. It was so random when it happened in the movie. I don't get why that's the thing that stopped them from killing him at first, but I just went with it like always. Martin gets into his car, and right when he realizes his mistake, the commander, Zombie, Herzog, raises his hand to punch through the window, and the movie cuts to black. And oh boy, I can't praise this next film enough. Let's just... Put it this way. I wouldn't call it a hidden gem. I'd say it's a hidden treasure. The second picks up right where the first left off, and it is easily better than the rest I just mentioned. In fact, I could go out on a limb and suggest this was one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had with a zombie movie. The characters speak English instead of Norwegian in this one, which was an odd choice, but I'm guessing it was the studio's attempt at attracting a wider audience. Even Martin was speaking English now and looks a lot different, and at first I thought I was watching a completely different zombie sequel, but they actually do show pivotal moments from the previous film, so you can just jump ahead to this whilst having a good sense of how the characters arrived at this point. In my own opinion, just look up what happens in the first Dead Snow and you're good to go. 
Before anything else, though, I have to tell you about particular scenes just so I can convince you to watch it. It's got great moments, like a kid being inadvertently killed by Martin's newly found zombie arm. Yes, I said that right. Intestines being used to pump gas into a tank from World War II. Missiles being launched at mothers strolling with their infants. An opposing zombified Red Army is also thrown into the mix. And it's all just this amalgamation of beautiful fucking chaos. I really don't want to spoil it any more than I have to because they pull off a lot of great ideas you can't really find in mainstream horror. Martin is hospitalized in the beginning after the first scene, and the medical surgeons replace his arm with Herzog's lost arm, which also got cut off. So instead of becoming evil like Ash's hand in Evil Dead 2, it ends up brutally availing Martin and holds the power to resurrect people into his ranks just as Herzog can on his own. It's pretty badass and I loved every second of it. My only small gripe with this movie, which is more of a preference by the way, is that they didn't really take the Nazi zombie idea far enough. The reason why the zombies are wreaking havoc on the local town is because it was their mission to kill all of its citizens before they were forced to flee to the mountains. Y you see, there's more of a backstory for them here, but nothing that makes them stand out from other types of zombies in the genre. While the movie's pace is well done and it is really neat to see how everything is resolved, I wouldn't have minded them taking an alternate direction. Their film was a masterpiece, to say the least. But I probably would have explored the supremacy aspect a little bit more and made the zombies fully-fledged ideologues. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's a really fun idea. I could see why they didn't go for that though, especially when Herzog sounds like this. Yee, so evil and so menacing. But if they made the actors speak English in the second, why not have the zombies speak English and up the ante with the humor a little bit, just by changing Herzog's delivery or doing something, or maybe even recasting? Here's how I would have done it. wanted Nazi Germany to rule! For over a thousand years, as humans, they were under the illusion that one color of a human was superior to another. Fools! All of them! Humans are reckless heathens who wage war from pure emotion. We have transcended above that and beyond mortality. We will rule, because we are immortal! It is our destiny! And we start by squishing this puny little town! They expected us to what? They expected us to grovel! They expected us to be doomed to eternal damnation! We shall kill and resurrect those into our ranks and become an unstoppable force! The time has come for the undead to rise above the ground and inherit the earth. Who is this Hortzog? I also love the version they went with, which was this mighty and virtually unstoppable beast commander of an immortal army. And you might have noticed that my takes on Evil Ash and Hertzog are very similar. To be honest with you, I have a lot of sympathy for characters who are maniacally evil and that buy into delusions of grandeur. In sum, Dead Snow 2 Red vs. Dead is the one movie that I personally recommend the most above all. Watch it with your friends or your lover and make sure to invite me over. Seriously. You could watch it right now on YouTube for free. And if you have YouTube Premium, you could watch it without the ads.
Oh, man. Well, I talked about some pretty good movies, didn't I? <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. I was too busy looking at myself in the mirror. Oh, alright. When are you going to talk about Twilight? Right after this next one, which is uh, Resident Evil. This movie is the last one for the segment, and it is by far the worst zombie movie I've ever seen. I can't think of anything else that could top it. Let me read the synopsis for you. Based on the popular video game, Mila Jovovich and Michelle Rodriguez star as the leaders of a commando team who must break into the Hive, a vast underground genetics laboratory operated by the powerful Umbrella Corporation. There, a deadly virus has been unleashed, killing the lab's personnel and resurrecting them as the evil undead. The team has just three hours to shut down the lab's supercomputer and close the facility before the virus threatens to overrun the Earth. All right, I think it's good to point out the director and writer for this film is Paul W.S. Anderson, who also happened to be a producer for Pandorum, a movie that I previously reviewed and that I wasn't too fond of. Let me be honest, I was already predisposed to disliking this movie from the get-go, even when I never saw anything beforehand, because of the fact that this franchise is notorious for its low-quality films. And it fell short of having any redeeming qualities, with only a few exceptionally entertaining scenes. I don't know... What didn't work about this movie? Uh, there's a whole lot to critique from the bland acting, the choppy editing, the great color palette. But what I think tore into my skin the most was the story itself, the lack of character depth, and the way the script took itself a little too seriously for something that was really just based off of a video game. The main character, Alice, isn't compelling to watch at all. Um, mainly because of the way she was written and directed. It could be because she was a very bad actress, but I don't think that was the reason. Some of the fight scenes she had were really cool, though, uh, especially when she kills, like, a horde of rabid zombie dogs with her kung fu, but I think I would have liked to have seen more charisma from her for sure. Of course, this critique is coming from a hetero cis male, so do with that what you will, and take it with a grain of salt. Uh, it's also important to realize that Hollywood has had a trend of writing female characters for the male gaze, so that might have actually had something to do with why her performance was vanilla. There was no charismatic ideologue to push back against the protagonists either. You have the supercomputer who kills a few to save the many, so it dabbles in that philosophical conflict. It's neat to see it manifest itself as an eight-year-old girl hologram and prioritize containing the virus by any means necessary. But the scenes with the supercomputer are very few and far between, and we don't really have it as the main focus. Uh, then you have the characters who caused the dilemma, the two who started the outbreak in the hive, but they have amnesia through 85% of the movie, so it doesn't really dig into their motives or the backstory for why they caused all the mayhem. Alice starts remembering important moments that tie into her involvement as they're hurtling through the action, and when the amnesia finally wears off and they find out how it all started and why they're all there, it kinda turns out to be a little underwhelming. Let me break it down for you. Alice's ex-boyfriend Spencer decides to betray the Umbrella Corporation after finding out that Alice was planning on exposing their dark secrets. And he planned on selling the antivirus and believed that the infiltrators who were helping Alice sabotage the corporation could never stop them because of whatever subpar personal qualities they had. But you can't just wash your hands of this. We worked for the same company. You knew what they did. I was trying to stop them. No. You, 
you really believe that people like him will ever change anything? No. That's as far as the explanation goes. They also don't go into much detail as to why Alice decided to betray them, other than finding out they were running inhumane experiments, but why didn't they look deeper? Because it's not a personal reason for why anyone should care or get involved, especially with something that's extremely dangerous. Nor does it really rile anyone up. Like, if it's not a personal story, why should anyone care? Sure, they have zombies in their storage areas, but what made her revolt? They all have these uh, wickedly concocted bioweapons, but why would it bother her when there are so many other people that work there? You see what I mean? They could have used a few scenes of her watching smaller children being exploited in experiments as a bystander whilst being a pregnant woman or someone with a daughter or son already and showing her panicking with the new life that she has to lead against the Umbrella Corporation. It's a story that makes sense, but it's nothing that I could really buy into. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be mindless fun, but if you can't have us sympathize with the characters and really flesh out their motives, then what's the point? It also doesn't have much entertainment value. We get generic looking zombies, mid-tier fight scenes, and a creature called the Liquor, but it gets less than five minutes of screen time and is done with outdated CGI, so the movie doesn't manage to do a great job of making itself stand out. I don't really have an answer for what they could have done differently. Maybe flesh out Alice a bit more. If they showed us some of the other creatures besides the Liquor and the zombies, that would have been neat, but who knows? What are your thoughts? Do you think this movie could have been saved by an alternate direction? Or do you believe this idea should have never gone into fruition from the get-go? If you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it at all. Uh, It did feel like a waste of time and money since it was not freely available on any streaming platform. Go check out Zombieland, Train to Busan, Dawn of the Dead, Death Snow 2. You know, there are plenty of great ones to check out, but don't pay to see Resident Evil, the first movie. I know there's one coming out this weekend, but I promise you, this one is not worth it. Oh, man. Oh, boy. We're finally here. We're talking about Twilight. I couldn't avoid it any longer. Yikes. Well, here it goes. I binged all the movies when they were released on Netflix, and instead of reviewing them individually like how I normally do, I thought it would be more fitting to reflect on the saga as a whole. What's more important to address with this franchise is its legacy, so you must be wondering, are they worth watching? Would I recommend it? Are the movies entertaining? Of course they are. Those are some loaded questions, but I think what actually matters the most is who you're recommending the movies to, and I'll explain why. The classic lore Myers used is simple enough to get everyone on board. She uses the classic vampire and werewolf horror mythos and adds her own twist to it. It's not as convoluted as Marvel or Star Wars, and rightfully so. It has a mass appeal and was able to gross over $3.3 billion altogether, making it the 18th most popular franchise of all time as of December 2020. The vampires can't just dissipate when exposed to the sunlight. They need to sparkle. Likewise, the werewolves couldn't be ugly. They had to look like cute big dogs, and the studio had to make each of them half-naked Native American jocks when they're in their human form. This was all, quite frankly, a deliberate effort to appeal to a younger female demographic. Because that's how we can sell sex to little girls! (laughs) He said it, not me. 
What's so unique about Twilight is that you could watch it ironically or unironically, and I'm happy to admit that I was embracing the viewing experience in both. We're watching beautiful, I'm talking drop-dead gorgeous mommies and daddies fight, love, hate, kiss, and romanticize each other to get to the end result of Edward and Bella living together for all of eternity. And all of us kind of want that, right? So, Stephanie Myers definitely tapped into a passionate desire that's deeply embedded within all of us. It's safe to say that a lot of people wouldn't mind binding themselves with the super hot sexy soulmate to be immortalized with. But let's pause for a sec. What kind of message did this send to a younger, impressionable audience when it was first released? How did Hollywood influence romantic expectations with this franchise? And, you know, maybe there's nothing to look into, perhaps I'm just being a cynical fuddy-duddy, but I think it's a good idea to acknowledge that neither Edwards nor Jacob's insufferable behavior throughout the series should be tolerated by anyone in the real world. And honestly, Edward and Bella don't even look like they have anything in common. What are their values, hobbies, or interests, uh, besides being madly in love with each other? Seriously, the, the movies definitely would have felt different had they tapped into those things. Bella? Yes, Daddy? Now that you know I'm a vampire, I want to know more about you. Oh, <laughs> what do you want to know? What are your interests and values? I'm interested in you, of course. <laughs> No, babe, that's not what I mean, you dumb bitch! What do you like doing? I like reading. I'm super into the Divergent series right now. Whatever vampires are into. How about you? Yeah, I, I'm really into classical music. I've been playing piano for over 40 years. Uh, you know what? This isn't gonna work out. Now that I think about it, he's over 100 and she's barely 17. Wouldn't he be way more sophisticated and isn't it peta? You know what? Never mind. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. It's fine if you're an adult, but I believe children who are watching these films should be more capable of identifying toxic patterns of behavior that were presented and realize Edward and Bella shouldn't be idealized for actual relationship standards. So my critique is more of what type of effect this has on younger generations, but as far as I'm aware, there haven't been studies done that have successfully measured if these movies manipulated kids into idealizing vanity or male toxicity for that matter. Overall, I had a good time rewatching it. I even cried during the end credits of the final movie, and the weakest film was still pretty enjoyable to watch, which could have been any one of the first three, I don't remember. Um... Apparently, Stephanie Meyer has been spotted as a racist, so make sure to cancel her on Twitter after you've listened to this episode. Just kidding. Don't do that. It's over with. Leave her alone. Final thoughts. Well, hmm. Uh, Jacob was even more toxic and cringe than Edward, so I'm gonna have to go with the latter on that one. Uh, is that what you wanted to know? There you go. That's the end of the review. Oh boy. I need water. Is that all you had to say about our movies? Yeah, Ed, I, I gotta move on. I can't devote any more attention to them. You're really gonna do me dirty? I did a whole monologue for you. Yeah, Eddie, that's just showbiz, okay? It's nothing personal. You would even do it to her? Isn't she to die for? Hey, baby, 
Who's the guy in the suit? Yeah, she's she's something, dude. Well, uh, it's been wonderful having the both of you here, but we need to move on with... With what? Uh, uh, um, okay, well, we're just gonna continue on with the program, and you guys could just exit, uh, uh. Where you going, little man? <laughs> you did us dirty, and now I'm going to suck you. <laughs> suck him hard, daddy. What? You don't have a better way of phrasing that? Stop. Wait. Uh, let me think. Uh, uh, all right, all right. Um, uh, how about we do a whole episode? How about we do two whole episodes uh, about Twilight? Would you like that? Uh, please, I'll do anything. It's too late now. Our appetite is roaring. <laughs> it's gonna be so yummy. Stephanie! We're being shot at. Oh my god, let's skedaddle. Hot tamales, let's get out of here. You know, something tells me those two aren't the real Edward and Bella. Mm. Well, thanks for having my back, Steph. I, uh, appreciate it. You're welcome, loser. Well, could I have a hug? No. Alright. Well, uh, I guess I'll see you then. Not so fast. You have to review these three movies. You arrogant little... Uh, alright, well, I guess it's the least I could do. Okay, apparently I gotta review these three movies instead of talking about them in a chill podcast segment like I originally wanted to. And I think she even made me sick. And that little... Stu Old by M. Night Shyamalan was definitely one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had in a theater. If you're not already aware, Old is a thriller about a family on a tropical island who discovered that the secluded beach they were relaxing on for a few hours is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing their entire lives into a single day. I, I gotta say, this is one of those movies that's so bad and so cringy that it actually makes for an entertaining experience, but definitely not the worst on the cringe scale. There would be out-of-pocket moments that have the group removing tumors from the parents, a little girl growing older and bearing a child within the span of five minutes, and actually seeing the reactions from the characters is pretty hilarious. Like, the girl's dad has this schizophrenic condition that's growing along with everyone else's accelerated aging, and when everybody's worried and shit, he'd go, Hey, uh, did you know that Marlon Brando and Kate Bishop were in that movie together? And he'd say other things that are completely unrelated to what's happening, and it's so laughably bad. And you're like, dude, your children are literally in danger, fucker. And there are plenty of moments like that. So this is Shyamalan at his cringy best, in my opinion. By the end, we find out that the tourists were actually trapped there so that a pharmaceutical company could test whether or not their life-saving drugs work. And you think to yourself, well, is that justified? Exploiting a few to save the many? Because these questions personally leave me on the fence and a little perplexed. They're suffering all over the globe. Surely we can randomize the selection or have volunteers. So maybe this could work. No, 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 no. But then who'd be the volunteers? People from low-income backgrounds who are desperate to help their families? So it'd be Squid Game all over again. Yeah, it wouldn't work. What do you think? Okay, so now we've arrived at the last two movies for this episode, Contagion and Shark Tale. And I want to focus on one thing for the former. Was it an accurate assessment of how America would logically handle a pandemic? I could see a writer thinking to himself, okay, 
We'll infer off what we know now, add a dash of drama and a little bit of spice, make the problem resolvable, and have the movie end on a good note. But is it a good film? Yeah, kinda. Everyone should be able to guess what the synopsis is based on the title alone. There's an outbreak of a deadly virus that's able to wipe out people from all over the globe and from all age groups, healthy or not. And the CDC races to limit the spread, help those that are sick, and develop a vaccine. I was surprised to see how many aspects are similar to the ongoing COVID pandemic. For example, there's this one dude spreading misinformation by prescribing a non-CDC approved remedy for the virus and all throughout the movie, he critiques the federal response. He publicly disavows the government-made vaccine and is even arrested for conspiracy and fraud. I think the writers were able to predict the skepticism really well, but not the American cultural divide that overlaps with it. Nor does it really show people defying restrictive mandates that definitely would have been ordered by the state. But in retrospect, we can all agree 2011 was a very different year than, say, 2015. So it's understandable. There are a whole plethora of characters the movie switches between, so there isn't a main person we stick with per se. We view what happens through the character's eyes of how cities are blocked off, how people resort to physical violence, but it never cuts away from them to major cities like Los Angeles or New York or others like it to show how the pandemic is affecting them because none of the people we follow are located in those areas so it doesn't make an effort to show what the entire population is going through. The characters all have very relatable self-interests. Some who work within the CDC tell their family members about lockdowns and pivotal updates before announcements are made to the public. Folks from China kidnapped one of the scientists from the World Health Organization as ransom to get the vaccine so it takes the time to show how desperate people are to minimize the harm done by the virus at all costs. It does play into one of the more violent extremes of what could happen to the point where it's almost not realistic. But this is a much deadlier virus than Corona or H1N1, which is actually what inspired the movie to begin with. It makes you wonder whether or not something like this could ever exist, or if the COVID virus could evolve into a much deadlier variant. There are beautiful moments where characters are being compassionate to each other. One scene in particular shows Kate Winslet handing a blanket to another person in a makeshift outdoor hospital setting, and shows how Matt Damon's character is sweet enough to make an at-home prom for his daughter by the end of the movie. His character was kind of adult for the purpose of the story. Uh, for example, a doctor would explain something to him where he'd get confused and, and then they'd break it down for him in layman's terms, probably for the purpose of having everyone who's watching understand. And he's the only person that's not wearing a mask because he had immunity, which is dumb because how the hell do you signal to others that you're immune? And even if there was a way, how are they supposed to take your word for it? And all the extras were wearing masks, but there was no strict mandate. So the movie just glossed over that as if it was nothing. Is it worth watching? Um, yeah. This is not what I normally like to view, but I think you should give it a shot if you're interested in comparing and contrasting between what Hollywood was able to predict and today's pandemic. So now we've arrived at the last movie on our list. I really didn't want to like Shark Tale at all, and I've loved so many from DreamWorks like Shrek, How to Train Your Dragon, Prince of Egypt, and Kung Fu Panda, the last of which is my all-time favorite from that studio. But man, did this look like someone botched it together with some duct tape in their backyard. That was my first impression of it. The movie has a star-studded cast, probably where they spent most of their budget. It has Jack Black and Angelina Jolie, who later went on to do Kung Fu Panda, Will Smith, famous director Martin Scorsese, and Robert De Niro, 
who both happen to be in it for some reason and actually pull off some pretty good voice acting. I just don't understand why they chose to do it. Their presence in the film just makes the parallel between this and Godfather way more legitimate, so it made me wonder why they would validate this bad behavior in the first place. All jokes aside, the movie's effects are obviously very bad and don't hold up to today's CGI standards in the slightest. However, it's a cute film and I definitely recommend allowing your kid to watch it if it is available for streaming. Here's the synopsis. Underachiever Oscar is a pint-sized fish with grand aspirations. When mob-connected great white shark Frankie is accidentally killed, Oscar concocts a story with Frankie's peace-loving brother, Lenny, that it was he who murdered the shark. Suddenly hailed Shark Slayer by his aquatic brethren, Oscar has bigger fish to fry when Frankie's father, mob boss Don Lino, dispatches his henchmen to track down his son's killer. Oscar is the charlatan who arrives at fame and fortune by fooling everyone, and that alone definitely resonates in the more modern sense. I am officially running for President of the United States. Yeah. I started to feel intrigued and respect this film a lot more once I realized the direction they were taking with the story, because I couldn't get into the first act at all. At first it just presented itself with subpar effects and cringy humor, and I thought that was all it was ever going to amount to, but the end result wasn't bad. In fact, I think I'd like to add my own thoughts to the film's message. It goes back to the saying, the grass is greener on the other side. But let's explore that for a moment. Is there happiness in someone's work or passion? more than what they could ever derive from loved ones around them. Oscar chooses a more wholesome way of living by the end of the movie, and I really respect it for embracing this notion of making the best life for yourself with a job that's seemingly mediocre from the outside POV, and more importantly, cherishing those around you. Throughout the movie, we could pick up on how he doesn't want to be a loser or someone that's forgotten, and we all feel that way. At least she treats me like I'm somebody. Yeah, but would she love you if you were nobody? Nobody loved me when I was nobody! That one heartfelt moment in the film spoke so many deeper truths. What does Oscar really want? And looking past fame, you could argue that he simply wants to be valued and equally recognized as a person despite not having achieved anything grand. And let me ask you this. Do we have too many people obsessed with fame and recognition? And why is that considered a bad thing? Chasing something like fame or racing to outlast time is inherently vain since life moves forward with or without you. Even in the short term, you'll be crowded out by other forms of greatness, so it's a cycle that'll perpetuate itself no matter what, so no one could ever let that get into their heads. But I will say this, if you're truly passionate about something and if you're driven to proving to yourself that you can beat the odds, that's really important. Hell, I'm not even talking about the film anymore. Prove that you could beat the odds no matter their difficulty. Rise up to the challenge for the community and for yourself, most importantly. We're not made to last. And our image is definitely not going to either, so take the risk anyway. It'll be worth it even if you lose. And this really applies to all contexts. You have to believe in yourself. Truly. Well, this was a lot of fun. I hope you all like this episode, and I'll be sure to make more in the future. Make sure to follow at number one on Twitter and Instagram. I wish you all a good day, a good night, to whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever you are. I certainly wish you the best of what life has to offer, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Take care, and bye-bye.